Hi, this is Derek Karp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I am uh, excited to uh, introduce my next guest, uh, Sean McGurk, the executive director, global cybersecurity operations at Las Vegas Sands Corp. But that is just the tip of the iceberg uh, of what uh, Sean has done over many years. He is a military veteran. He is a sailor. He's a scuba diver, speaker, brewmaster. He's a cyclist. He's an author. He's a man of, uh, of many talents and uh, a lot of very interesting stops along a cybersecurity uh, uh, journey. So, Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you, Derek. I appreciate you having me on today. So, I, as I told you when we were talking earlier, I've been looking forward to this. Um, we, we share some, some common uh, DNA, although you, uh, have, uh, you put in 28 years in the Navy, and I, I did five, so I am in awe of anybody uh, with the length of time. And you, you did a lot of super interesting things and, and uh, were in a, a very, very interesting role at the end of that. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that in a sec, but thank you for your, uh, thank you for your, your service. Thank you as well. Um, so, you know, Sean, I always start, uh, some, some of these episodes have the same shtick uh, that all cybersecurity people are sort of modern day superheroes and all superheroes have a backstory. Uh, so, you know, uh, what, what is yours? Where, where do you, where'd you grow up? Where'd you come from? Uh, I was born and grew up mainly in the Philadelphia area, greater Philadelphia area. You know, I went to uh, 12 years all boys Catholic school. I have the scars to prove it. So uh, definitely uh, uh, set set my ways in education early early in life. You've got the uh, the, the ruler uh, the nuns ruler scars. Oh yes. You know, an interesting thing uh, I always thought. You know, when people uh, when we look at somebody's professional journey, you know, what were the early any early things you did, quote unquote, for work in those in, you know early years, pre pre graduation of high school? Uh, what what introduced you to to work? I guess so to speak. Well, it's interesting because. Um, we always had to have some type of occupation in the summertime. So my father was insistent about the fact that summer was not time off. So you could actually get uh, a paper route, which, you know, most people can do. I remember my freshman year of high school, I wasn't diligent enough getting a job. So my father had a friend who uh, actually found me a job working in a foundry making um, manhole covers. So I would sit there and take the negative and stamp it into the sand. And then, you know, the older gentleman would actually pour the hot metal. I would just walk around stamping sand. But I learned after a couple of months doing that, that um, I need to be a little bit more proactive about finding a job. I love it. You know, everything has to come from somewhere, right? Manhole covers. I mean, there, there you go. Well, that's, that's cool. So um, any, any, any early interest in, uh, in technology? Yeah, actually from the very beginning, uh, I remember, you know, uh, being, being in trouble often when I was a child for taking things like toasters apart and other things. Um, basically, if you could plug it in and generate it heat, I, I would try to fix it. So that got me started. I remember my first computer was actually a Zilog Z80A, uh, and I wanted to learn how to program it because we were swapping games uh, and we had to be able to be able to copy them in order to do that. Yeah, I my first was a Commodore 64, and it all centered around games and copies of games and bulletin boards to download games. And uh, yeah, I think there's two early things. One we won't talk about in games that the whole technology was, you know, the whole reason it existed was to facilitate two 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 areas. Absolutely, I, I actually did um, advance to a, a, a TRS-80 color computer. I liked the 6809 microprocessor because it had those two eight-bit arithmetic registers that you could gang together. And it made programming a lot easier. Yeah, I remember the TRS-80. My neighbor had that. I had the Commodore 64, and he had the yep. TRS-80. And at the time, I think we uh, the, the nickname was the Trash 80. 
graduating. That's right. Yeah, be like, wait a minute, don't don't do call it that. Yeah. So um, okay, cool. So um, what what happens as you get uh, near the end of high school? What do you you know where do you decide to go? What do you decide to do? Well, uh, during that time period, uh, to not have to make manhole covers anymore, I actually uh, wound up falling into the best job I had in high school, which was uh, as an usher in a movie theater in downtown Philadelphia, where I got to watch movies for free. I got paid, and I didn't have to work. You know, in a very labor-intensive situation. I actually remember I worked the premiere of Star Wars, A New Hope, when it first came out. I saw that movie 476 times, not because I wanted to, but because I was standing in the back the whole time. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, there's so many things to pick apart there, but so you're saying the work environment of making manhole covers and being an usher in a movie theater are very different work environments. Slightly different, slightly different. <laughs> I, I can imagine you could you, could, you you probably still can quote the movie uh, Star Wars movie uh, you know chapter and verse pretty much. <laughs> so uh, what's next is is uh, is the Navy next? Because uh, well, actually, I, I enrolled in college and started um, going to a local university. But a friend of mine that I went to high school with, he came back from he went immediately into into the Navy, and he went into the submarine community, and he went into this particular career field. Uh, and he came back for, for uh, excuse me, it was winter break um, around Christmas time. And he was currently stationed in Hawaii. And he was telling me how wonderful his life is. And I'm in dreary Philadelphia, you know, deciding what I'm going to study next after being locked up, you know, wearing a coat and tie in school for the last 12 years, looking at another potentially four years. Uh, and everything he told me sounded great. So there we go. And uh, and I think you said he's in Hawaii. And I think you ended up in Hawaii, too, if I remember right. I, I did. One of my first tours uh, was in a submarine in Hawaii. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious. You know, I know, uh, you know 28 years and being submarine force uh, technology, you, you know, right away, you, you probably went to some schools. What was your area of, of focus? So I was uh, what they called a fire control technician ballistic missile. We were we were the the group that sat inside the missile control center and monitored the systems that controlled the up to 16 ballistic missiles on a Polaris Poseidon uh, or Trident uh, C, C, or C4 missile submarine. And we got involved in command and control. We got involved in communications, secure communications, all of those technologies associated uh, with operating that environment. So that's really what jump started my interest in the whole field of cyber physical. Yeah, it, it's I mean that's where obviously where we'll end up and and where we're where are the nexus of where our paths uh, you know cross today is around this operating technology. But that yeah, you 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 probably more so than anybody than I know the nuclear navy you know we took obviously process control very seriously, yes, cybersecurity less so uh, or or no concern at a certain stage. But today, that would be also a sophisticated cybersecurity area uh, in, in the commercial sector, for sure, too. In, in, within power and energy companies, this that area is one where security has been probably one of the, you know, the, the OT or ICS security. That's probably one of the longest, the longest areas where it's been developing, whereas a cardboard manufacturer is only mm -hmm. waking up, waking up now to uh, to their cybersecurity risks. The, you know, the, the, the nuclear, the regulatory sort of uh, requirements and things on, on, on cybersecurity related to nuclear power plants been been present for a while. Do you recall any sort of any, um, I know you, you would have had a lot of training around physical security and anybody accessing things that they shouldn't. Uh, do you recall in, in all those years or when you moved to, to Washington DC and were on, you know, uh, um, overseeing various programs, 
Do you remember any intersection of cybersecurity coming into conversation during those years? Oh, absolutely. In fact, it's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, power control and nuclear engineering uh, was focused on safety primarily throughout the, it, its inception, one of the safest industries ever developed. And on in our side, on the weapons side, there were the inherent security systems around the command and control systems, communication systems. So there was actually cybersecurity, although we didn't call it cybersecurity yeah. at the time. It wasn't even called information security yet back then. But we had various um, computer systems that would, you know, we would we would actually input the latitude, longitude, elevation, and elevation correction of every target that we were covering into a computer system. And then we had to validate that that information was being stored properly and then being transferred up to the missile guidance systems properly. And all of those networks involved, that was all the responsibility of the few of us that were working in this career field. Yeah, that is a great analog because the the, the cyber to physical consequences were so great. It's no wonder that that's, that's, you know, like you said, regardless of what it was called, terminology evolves. When I first got in, cybersecurity was also not a term. It was information security. And you go back even further, like you say, communication security and command and control and all these sorts of things. It, it makes sense. And, and that, that probably, it's interesting. It'll be, it'll be fun to come back when we, when we talk about your more recent years and where you are now, uh, sort of your, where you see uh, operational technology and, and, uh, and, and, and these sorts of things. And that, that early sort of early imprint that that work, uh, I would suspect, made, made on you. And there's people in senior cybersecurity roles today still that don't have that background. And then they, they don't really have the necessarily the, the, the context or empathy for operating technology, uh, you know, safety and security. It's just not not been part of their work path. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's more than just, you know, the analog systems. When you're thinking about overpressurizing a missile system uh, in a submerged submarine in preparation, you know, for launch, uh, there's a lot of complexities associated with that that you really have to monitor and understand. And, and those were the systems that, that we you know, operated, maintained. It, it really made an impression on me about the importance of cyber physical. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely hate to brush over 28 years. We could spend a whole hour talking about everything you did in the military, but I know there's other things that we want to get to. It just seems it seems sad for me to move on because there's so many things I'd unpack. But you you ended up being in the the highest office uh, in the land for the enlisted positions you know you you worked you were a one of the most senior enlisted positions in the navy and you worked directly for the most senior position the command the master chief petty officer of the entire navy yeah that is correct that's uh, that's where i culminated my career uh, as as you know in the navy they always promote you out of your you know your best position so i went from being chief of the boat on two different submarines to going to an aviation squadron to going to an aircraft carrier wing and then finally uh, winding up as a senior staff uh, for Vern Clark, who was the chief of naval operations at the time, working directly for the 10th Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, Terry Scott. So it was uh, it was quite a culmination in my career. Yeah, I, I can only imagine um, that's uh, that's sort of rare, rare air. Uh, I, I did have one other opportunity to utilize um, technology uh, during my career, and it was more or less in a reverse engineering process. Early when I was uh, first uh, chief petty officer, I went to a joint forces organization called the On-Site Inspection Agency, and we were tasked with doing on-site inspections of Soviet systems at the time under the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. Got to travel to the Soviet Union 
and actually do physical inspections of Soviet weapon systems, uh, mainly missile systems, because that was my specialty. But under the uh, Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty or START Treaty, we actually got to go to Soviet submarine bases and Soviet bomber bases. So it was quite interesting because, again, using that that understanding of technology really helps you enhance your ability to conduct your, uh, you know, your operations. Yeah, I can only imagine that work, the, the, going to those places, especially. And that was so that was during your during your service time. Yeah, I was uh, I had just been promoted to chief petty officer, left a submarine and I, I took that three year assignment and I was still active duty, although we never wore uniforms because we traveled under the auspices of the treaty. Yeah. But uh, I was I was in the Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet Union. Yeah, it was kind of a different world. And going to some of the most sensitive locations, I, I just I can sort of just even imagine that. Yeah. What a, what a unique uh, experience and the, the kind of things you got to, to observe that sell us. Very few people would be able to say they were there. Well, let's 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 we'll close that chapter out as, as, as much as I'm sad to do so. Uh, what is you know, and I think this is an interesting moment uh, to say what, what's next. How did what's next evolve? Obviously, you did a, you know an amazing full career, and so you retired from that. And you know, but but now you've gone on to have this another. You're in the middle of another, you know, fairly lengthy career. So I'm curious about that moment, the change. There's people in the service at various years of experience, you know, looking at what do they do next, and sort of the transition to the civilian sector. So you know, what 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 kind of things did you consider, and what did you do first? It's interesting because I had a very good mentor when I was getting ready to transition out of the military. And one of the most important things that he told me was, don't take a job with the DOD because you're going to see that, you know, the perception of you is that the color of your clothes have changed, but nothing else has. So you really need to find somewhere else to go. At the request of a, a family friend, I joined a small firm that was doing essentially software analysis and evaluation for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. So I thought that's far enough removed from DOD, but you know, not quite exactly. That taught me a lot about other government processes and how they how different organizations use technology. And, and I, I found that fascinating, but I didn't think that was going to be for me. So that's why I reached out to another a former colleague and applied for a position at the Department of Homeland Security, which is really where I spent some formative uh, points of my post-military career. And if um, I think there are some pretty significant moments of there that helped creating some entities that uh, that exist today, and being specifically working on control system security. So you're, you know, I was thinking in terms of maturity of this subsector of cybersecurity. If you go back 10 years, you eliminate a lot of the people that are in industry today. There's there's clearly some people. Some of them have been on the show, uh, you know, other guests like you who go back prior to 10 years. But it's a much, much smaller group as far as working on cybersecurity uh, as it pertains to a control system. Um, if you go back 15 years, it's a tiny, tiny list. Um, it gets even smaller. And, and everybody seems to know each other at that level. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not mistaken, you're, you're talking 14 years ago, you're you're exposed to control system cybersecurity. Yeah, actually, it was. Uh, I joined the department as the director for the Control System Security Program in December of 2007. So when you think about what was going on back then, control systems they weren't well understood. What my predecessor at uh, at CSSP had performed was a demonstration inspection at the Idaho National Lab 
involving a motor generator set and demonstrating that uh, cyber means could enact a physical consequence. So that is essentially the world that I walked into was inheriting from uh, my friend Perry everything about that test and then how do we communicate that going forward. So it, it really set the groundwork. It was a very, uh, I hate to use the word groundbreaking because that's overused a lot, but it was a very important demonstration of capability that uh, people didn't fully understand at the time. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. I'm curious, you know, there's there's just with the time we've got, there's so many threads I can't pull, but I, I am curious with that perspective and going through, you know, uh, what are we talking, 14 years now, what what is your perspective on cybersecurity for control systems? Are we making progress? You know, um, you know I have my own opinions and, and things I would measure, but you've got a unique perspective on this from coming from those early sort of er, er, much, much earlier days where you, like you said, understanding was very, very low. Are, is understanding much higher now? Uh, I think understanding is higher and, and more importantly, awareness is a lot higher, you know, because you can have a, a, an engineer's understanding of the problem, but if the board doesn't have a general awareness of the situation, and I, I think that was the twofold approach that we would take. So we would blow up generators in the middle of the desert, and then it was up to me to go to Congress and explain to them what that really means and why I really need this money in order to create the ICS cert, uh, because nothing like that had ever existed. That helped build the business case to take to Congress to get the necessary funding in order to create that capability at the national level. Yeah, I heard you didn't say it. I heard the word translation, translating this to maybe the right terms over here, you know, uh, and that's key. And we and we see that a lot. I think that's uh, you know, that's a, uh, an area of great advice for, for all sorts of people at different levels of their career is learn your audience and learn to translate. So if you're if you're in background is heavy duty engineering or software uh, technical, and now you may be promoted, as many people are promoted into into leadership management realm. It's like you may need to learn some additional ways to translate things because some of the people that you're going to talk to are not going to care nor speak the technical the technical language. Exactly. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, always we, we default back to that comfort zone in many cases. And really, you never achieve anything when you're comfortable, anything great. So, um, you know, part of it is to make sure you put yourself in uncomfortable positions so that you can grow and develop. Let's talk about some of the things that were were created. You mentioned the ICS cert. You know, w w there were some things that you were right there um, taking hand in creation of some some things that exist today. What what would you recall from sort of that time and some of the the DHS programs? Well, it, it was it was an interesting challenge that I had a very very great team of both not only federal employees uh, at DHS but the team out at Idaho National Lab that did a phenomenal job in actually translating some of my PowerPoint into like real things. The uh, red team, blue team training center with all of the equipment, you know, we used to do that in a hotel room, you know, small mock-ups, but building out that entire facility, you know, I had the funding, I had the idea, but the team out there, they made everything happen and they did a fantastic job putting it all together. And the same thing with the ICS cert, we had a nascent watch center in the US cert, uh, in our headquarters building, but the real heavy lift was done by folks like Rob Hoffman and company out at INL. You know, they really did all of the the testing and the evaluation. So that's that was a big part of it. Was you know, cyber. We always used to joke, cybersecurity is a team effort. 
Well, it is when you actually work with a team. You know, you've mentioned a number of things, team, mentorship. You mentioned a, a mentor uh, in your role, and that's always something that I try to get to in these interviews, the role uh, of, of mentorship, for one thing, being a mentor and being a mentee. And, and you, you've, you sort of beat me to the punch. Maybe elaborate a little on that, that how that how that's played out for you and how important that is. Well, it, it, it is very important to, you know, give back when, when you receive well. So when you have a good mentor, you know, learn as much as you can, ask the challenging questions um, and absorb. I, I go back to what my grandmother always told me. You have two ears and one mouth. So listen twice as much as you speak. So that's that's one of the lessons that I learned early on was, you know, take copious amounts of notes and pay attention. And then the translation piece comes from the mentor mentee relationship. So what I found is I could be sitting there and saying the same thing over and over and over again to my mentee. And, you know, they're giving me a blank stare because I realized at that point I'm not saying it right. It's not them that is not getting the message. It's me not providing the proper message for them to understand it. Yeah, back to translation again. Yep, back to translation. Communication is uh, it's just huge. I think, you know, at any probably any role, but certainly the more one uh, gets more responsibility in any organization, the, 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 the communication skills, uh, in my opinion, are, are just everything. And that's what you're talking about, how to, how to properly communicate to different audiences, people yep. reporting to and people reporting to you and people you're trying to motivate, people you're trying to win, win over and mentees. I mean, it's all it's all about that. So I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Do you recall people ask sometimes, especially entry level or, or some of the people earlier in their career path in our community, how to obtain a mentor? And I've had different guests sort of talk about that, but it seems daunting maybe like, oh, I couldn't ask so-and-so. I mean, why would they give me any time? You know, what's your what's your advice and thoughts on how, how, how to obtain a mentor? And, and I think mentor is, there could be official mentor that meets once a month. It could be very formalized. Okay, those exist. But mentorship also happens uh, at a coffee shop uh, quite informally, uh, you know, so it's I don't mean to, to only indicate sort of formal arrangements. No, I, I completely agree. I think, uh, you know, something as informal as a one on one meeting, you know, periodically, and it doesn't have to be every week or every two weeks or every month. But just having that opportunity, what I suggest people do and I, I found successful that I respond well to is, you know, a, a young person in the industry today, they'll send me an email and saying, you know, do you have a minute for a 30, you know, do you have time for a 30 minute chat? It's like, sure, absolutely. Why not? You know, be, be happy to. Um, you never know what is going to entail from that. So I always, you know, maintain that openness to, you know, pick up the phone or jump on a, you know, a video call. Uh, and, and just, you know, talk about something. And I would encourage mentees to take the risk. I mean, find that person that you're probably not comfortable around and ask them because he or she will probably surprise you with their answer. I, I think that's one of the, you know, the, the golden nuggets of today. I, every one of these sessions has had you guys share something that's like, there it is. That's one of them. And it's just just ask. People's fear of or preconception of how that's going to go. I'm going to get turned away. I'm going to get no. I'm gonna, and it, 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 you're more often than not, it's not always an open door, but you're more often not surprised. Yes. And I think in our community in cybersecurity, I think it's even more the case that people are willing to lend a helping hand to others than I've seen in other industries. Well, I mean, we didn't get here because, you know, we, we got all the magic poured into our heads at an early age. <laughs> you know, all of us learned the hard way. So I'm happy to help you make new mistakes that I can learn from your new mistakes and you can learn from my old mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's transition to team because you mentioned that uh, word as well and the power and magic around team. I mean, I, I look at some of that. I'm, I'm starting to come and look at our, our whole problem space and I'm 
after years of helping create, you know, and found technology companies, I find myself not dwelling on or looking at technology much anymore, but looking at the human being problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're they're significant. There's a lot of dysfunction, and there's just there's all sorts of things. And not to pick all that apart, coming together as a team, either a, a, a real team, sure, they should function well, but then teams that aren't obvious. This group needs to work better with this group. And maybe it's a cross-functional team or it's a dotted line between these individuals and not a formal team. But nonetheless, we're all, we're all, we all need to be on the same, the same team. So I think uh, I know based on your military years and then what you've done since, you've seen all kinds of team configurations, some successful, some not. What, what do you recall about that and what advice? I mean, if you had to go back and give yourself early advice about some of the teams that you found yourself managing, you know, would you do everything the way you did it or would you do some things differently? Well, I, I learned and adopted a, a philosophy a couple of years back that uh, I think also applies in the team dynamic, and it's called fail fast. If it's not working, don't force it to work. You know, you, you will find yourself in situations that are just not going to work out. So don't don't think it's an indictment on your leadership ability. Just recognize that there's round pegs and there's square holes, and they're not going to fit. So let's let's regroup rethink this and then find, you know, find a better way. And then the second thing I would say is I always try to accentuate the positive. So if, if your skill set is not doing this, but, you know, you are the best person at, you know, writing this code or decompiling these ladder logics, that, that's where I'm going to put you. I don't care if you got hired to be, you know, X, Y, Z, this is what you're going to do because that's where you're contributing the most. And don't be afraid to help someone recognize the fact where they can most contribute. I guess that's the same thing as right seat on the right uh, or right butt on the right seat of the bus, right? I mean, the way you just described, that's what came to mind is that old saying. Yep. Um, and if the, the, a person can be in the wrong seat, doesn't make them a bad person, but they're in the wrong they're in the wrong seat. So that team on the bus, but they're just not in the right seat on the bus. Yeah, sure. Well, so you go on from DHS, almost four years there. And I mean, we, we can't unpack all these, but it's amazing. I mean, industrial service created Verizon, then centripetal cent, 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 network? Centripetal? Centripetal, like centripetal force? Centripetal, okay. Then Intel, critical infrastructure protection. Uh, and then Amazon, chief security officer, data center operations. And then dark matter, and then crypto curve, and, and, uh, and then back to working with uh, US Army, uh, Network Enterprise Technology Command. Um, ICS ISAC for 10 years. Uh, and now, you know, now in a really interesting position, that I definitely want to get to uh, as far as uh, Las Vegas Sands. So, you know, what do you say about all those those very interesting chapters and, and some, you know, incredible recognizable institutions and organizations? One of the things that I found that allowed me to be um, most successful, I actually learned back in my military days, never be afraid to take a chance. So, I was told that Navy stood for never again volunteer yourself, right? It was an acronym. But every time something came up, it's like, hey, we need someone to go do this. Oh, I'll go do that. I, I was a product of government, whether it was as a civilian in DHS or military for 28 years. But, you know, there was an opportunity to move in the private industry, something that, you know, I was completely unfamiliar with. An organization wanted to build an ICS practice. Uh, they had absolutely no knowledge or no understanding or awareness of how to do it. So I put my hand up and said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And every time I was willing to, to take a risk, I found that the reward was tenfold. Dark matter, you mentioned, moving to the Middle East and working at the Emirates Nuclear Energy Corporation, um, you know, protecting their systems. 
talk about a challenge. Not a lot of people would uh, step up to that, but you know, I found it fascinating. Uh, no doubt, I can only imagine. Yeah, you've, you've had a. I mean, again, I, I told you before we started. You know, before we started recording, it just uh, it, what a fascinating journey. Um, a lot of different prospects. How many of those stops leaving the military to now? How many of those had critical infrastructure, operating technology, ICS, whatever you want to call it, Industry 4.0 aspects? Uh, some of them, they were in your title. Some of them, they were specifically something you were working on. Others, they might not have been in your, you know, in your in your title. But I wonder what part that that played in your path ever since. Yeah, and I tried to have that ICS focus in all those areas. So whether it was a small startup that was focused on IT security, you know, how do we integrate the OT environment? One of the big challenges I had when I was in the service industry, and it was actually working with some folks. In full disclosure, it was Mac McAfee, then it got bought by Intel, uh, then it went back to McAfee. But in that space, it was it was all about you know how do we break down that false barrier between IT and OT. So what I'm referring to there is in incident response situations, we had really great organizations out there that could respond to an IT event. And then they would work halfway through the infrastructure and then stop at that magical de demarcation line, write a report and say, okay, we're done. And then it's like, well, who takes care of the rest of the organization? So my mindset was always, let's not sell a product, let's provide a solution. And that solution has to be end to end. And that's really the approach I took was, you know, it may be on the IT side to begin with, and, and a lot of the conversation we have, you know, around those areas, but it, it invariably impacts in one way or another the OT. So we have to be familiar with it. Yeah, well, boy, I, I mean, I, you, I know you came to today. We had an event today, you know, one of our live events today. And some of this is what we were talking about, right? And I've never heard anybody say this, but the term I heard you talk when you were talking in my head, I heard there's like an intellectual firewall. They ran into this, you know, not a logical technology firewall, but like, oh, well, that's not that's not our part of the organization. And, right. uh, and and yeah, that can't really persist, right? There are people responsible for different things, true. So not saying that it should be totally convergent. Everybody should have all the same responsibilities. No, there are special knowledge and there are things that need to be known. But oh my God, understanding and empathy for your your counterpart, you know, incident response, it's 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 uh, all these sort of cause and effect might be in different parts of the company, right? And exactly. so I, I I couldn't agree with you more on that. Okay, well let's talk about uh, where you are today. I'm I'm uh, I'm just super curious about control systems and the modern you know the modern casinos. Um, they're amazing IT operations, I know, but there are all sorts of control-related aspects. I'm imagining cyber to physical elements. What can you share, you know, about all that? Well, when you think of it, you know, uh, something like a casino, it's it's a microcosm of a city. And if you just go down the strip in, in Vegas and you walk into any of the major casinos, power generation, water filtration, distribution, people movers, uh, transportation, communications, uh, surveillance, all of those things exist in a microcosm of an organization, you know, a single building. And then you multiply that by, you know, a scale based on the number of facilities that you operate globally, and it becomes a very interesting task. It really helps you focus on, you know, the, the industry term is the crown jewels. What are you really trying to protect? Because if you're trying to protect everything, you're going to protect nothing. Yeah. So really, what do you need to focus on? And that that really helps bring that into a state of mind. Yeah. Well, you're touching on something that uh, it, it, I think has emerged as super important prioritization. 
it's everything, right? And I mean, the complexity that your organization that you you know has and presents that you you and your teams try to manage. I can imagine uh, it's it's across the world. It's many different uh, geographies and facility types, and and uh, no organization can do it all. So you it, how what part does prioritization play in how you you go about tackling risk? Prioritization is important, and also segmentation. So understanding, you know, th- this is. This block here is inherently protected because of these mitigations. So where where do I have my risk? And, you know, again, we go back to the risk equation, threat, vulnerabilities, and consequences. If the threat is high, but the vulnerabilities are non-existent and the consequences are low, maybe that's not where I spend a lot of my time. Yeah. I spend my time where the consequences are high and that potential impact would be high simply because of an inherent system design characteristic. It may not even be a risk. It's just the way the system is designed. And that's really what we have to take a look at and prioritize. I, you know, I know I, there's questions that I would love to ask you and some of them maybe just not, not appropriate to sort of reveal. Are you seeing activity, you know, whether you call them incidents or not, are you seeing an increase in things you don't want to see going on? I, I think that's really across the board. And some of it, some of it is, you know, secondary and tertiary, you know, you, we, we, we always talk about, you know, Pecha and Pecha. We were, we were never the primary target. We meaning collectively the world was never the primary target. But, you know, you have secondary and tertiary effects. And we see the same things. You know, there was a big concern with the uh, sudden conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine on what those, you know, bleed over events would be. You know, how would that impact the rest of the community? And I think we're still analyzing that. Uh, and I, I still see things that are on the rise uh, across all industries, not just, you know, a, a few. I'm curious, but your application, building management systems, uh, HVAC, um, uh, like you said, security systems, which obviously are, are, are quite uh, sophisticated in your in your case. Um, are you seeing any incursions into building management systems or um, intentional, you know, I- into those systems or the, or the or the surveillance systems? I've seen reports of them, but I've not seen actual artifacts. So yeah. there's, you know, but again, we have to do our due diligence and keep yeah. uh, keep concerned. It's it's the building management system arena and just all the possible sort of things around that are uh, interesting area for sure. Well, what I'm always also curious about what what are you you know what are you excited about in the future? And and I think it it is ties to also people ask uh, we get entry level people asking you know what what's the ahead of the curve? You know what's an exciting area for me to potentially become gain expertise in and become, you know, become highly valuable, you know, and is that uh, artificial intelligence application to cybersecurity or, or blockchain or, you know, everybody has different opinions or like or dislike for buzzwords, but are there, are, you know, are there areas uh, of cybersecurity in the, in the OT sort of area that you're more excited about or cybersecurity in general that you're more excited about personally or that you see opportunity for people in the future? Yeah, actually there, I see a growing interest and I've had a lot of conversations with some, um, you know, fellow practitioners over the adoption uh, and integration of virtualization technology into the environment to, you know, kind of grow and scale uh, at, at lower cost. The adoption of cloud, of course, is continuing to grow uh, in the environment. And I, if I were to give a new engineer uh, some, some recommendations as far as what to learn a lot, you know, a lot more about, the, the whole concept of distributed communicate or commu- distributed commute computing which is cloud uh, that would be definitely be one area that I would say 
need to take a look at. And there's been, because a lot of government focus on it, but there's been a large uh, kind of uptick in zero trust architectures and adopting, you know, ZTA into the industrial control space. Because if, if I can credential things and things can authenticate, you know, to other things, then I solve a big problem about something, you know, unusual entering into that ecosystem. Yeah, for sure. That, that makes sense to me that those are, those are areas worth worth uh, kind of looking into for people who are making some early choices. Yeah, any advice you give, you go back over your long history of all these positions and stops, any advice you'd give if you were sitting down next to your younger self 30 years ago, what would, uh, you know, any advice? Or when you entered the commercial sector and left the military, any advice right at that juncture that you would you would give anybody? Yeah, I, I'd say the, the basic advice that I would give is when the door opens, have the courage to walk through it because you're never going to find out what's on the other side unless you be bold and you have to be bold. The transition from military to civilian career, it's not as daunting as you may think it is. It, you know, there's, there are, there are parallels there that, that play out. I I would say that, you know, again, take the chance. There's a little bit more risk, but the reward also is, you know, it's there for you if you're willing to take the chance. Uh, I love it. And that's a, a great, uh, a message to sort of end on uh, one of one of hope and optimism, and I, I share that. I think the glasses half full. We're making progress. Um, there's lots of opportunity. This is a great career space for people making early choices. Uh, I think a career, a career, good career opportunity for. I don't want to say forever, but I, I, I see there's been a genie center out of the bottle. This is a good career path for for the for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I don't see it. Uh, I don't see us fixing this anytime soon. Yeah, cybersecurity is never solved. So, yeah. uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue on this journey. It, it, you know, it's a journey, not a destination. I, yeah. I, I share that. I'm so glad you said that because I've said that before, too. It's like, yeah, we're, it's a journey and we're not going to arrive. Like, we're there. <laughs> that's just not a place. Yeah. So, no, yeah. that's sure. Well, super. Um, well, I always like to end uh, these interviews with a little uh, tip of my hat to a favorite show of mine, Inside the Actors Studio. Uh, I think it's still running, but I ran it. I, I watched it uh, years ago when James Lipton, uh, the, the longtime founding host of it, who has since passed on, was uh, interviewing all the greatest sort of actors and actresses uh, over decades. Um, and he ended his show when he borrowed uh, something from a French show. It's called the Beauvau Questionnaire. He borrowed it uh, from this other show. So I think this is many decades that this exact same set of questions have been asked uh, to uh, the Robert Redfords and the uh, the uh, the Gene Wapners and all these folks on the stage of the acting school. So if you're up for it, I'll ask you the uh, the Pivot questionnaire. Absolutely, looking forward right. to it. What is your favorite word? Trust. What is your least favorite word? Failure. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Uh, teams. What turns you off? Conflict. What is your favorite curse word? Fuck, there's so many good ones. Um, did you ever watch the movie or the TV series uh, Deadwood? Yes. Okay, we'll go with that one. Got it. Yep, I did watch it. My wife declined it, but I did watch the whole series. What sound or noise do you love? A Harley Davidson. What sound or noise do you hate? Fingernails on a chalkboard. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Professional diver. I, I got to see. I got thumbs up for that. What profession would you like to not do? Making manhole covers. 
something you know something about. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Welcome aboard. Well, Sean McGurk, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've had an amazing career uh, uh, rising up through the military to one of the most senior, most enlisted positions a person can have in the Navy. And uh, 28 years of service. Uh, thank you again for that. And then uh, uh, just a, another whole chapter of, of career profession at, at, at such interesting positions and with a, often a focus on industrial control system and control system related cybersecurity. Uh, ending up today, executive director of uh, global cybersecurity operations at the Las Vegas Sands Corp. Uh, with a sprawling through global uh, enterprise uh, that you are responsible for. So thank you again for uh, all that you do and for your service and for coming on the show today. No, thank you, Derek. I really appreciate it. Had a good time. Good. Well, take care and be well, and I'll uh, I'll see you at another uh, event soon, and uh, I'll uh, hopefully uh, be able to cross paths with you uh, in face to face someday uh, someday in the in the near future. I, I always appreciate yep. that opportunity. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye.